hi everybody. Okay. Um, great. We'll get started on this session now. So um, welcome everybody to uh, this session. For this session we've, we have Olivia Larson who's going to tell us about some of the more experimental grants that GiveWell is currently excited about. Olivia works at GiveWell as a philanthropy advisor where she advises donors on how to achieve their philanthropic goals. She's been on both the research and the outreach teams um, at GiveWell, and she's been involved in effective altruism since 2016. She holds a BA in economics and English from Williams College, where she founded their effective altruism student group. And she also holds an MBA from Yale School of Management. Um, so before I hand over to Olivia, I'll just remind you that um, we will have some time for Q&A at the end of the talk. And if you have any questions for Olivia, you can submit them in the Swap Card app. And in the app, you can also um, upvote for the questions that you like, and we'll try and get through as many as we can. Um, okay, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming Olivia Larson. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for coming to hear a little bit about some of the new interventions that GiveWell is currently really excited to be funding and researching. So before we dive in into learning about GiveWell's new interventions, it might be helpful to share what we think of as new interventions. So when you think about GiveWell, you might think a lot about the interventions or the programs that our top charities implement, which are the ones uh, right there, as well as deworming, which we've supported for a really long time. And these are what we call our core interventions because they're the programs that we've been working with for at least six years for each of them, some of them over 10 years. Um, so this is where the majority of our funding goes, um, and but we also make grants outside of our core interventions, uh, including to new interventions, which is basically everything outside of the, our top charities programs plus uh, deworming. And some of the reasons that you might be most familiar with GiveWell's core interventions is because it makes up the majority of our grant making. Last year, we allocated around 77% of our grants to our core interventions, compared with 23% uh, to our new interventions. But what you might not know as much about because uh, we don't grant to it as much is that we spend more time on our new interventions even though we allocate more funding to our core interventions. And so there's a few reasons that this happens. Uh, the first is that our core interventions grants are each a lot bigger than our new interventions grants. And this is possible for a few reasons. First is that because we've been working with uh, our core intervention implementers for so long, they've all gotten to be a pretty big scale. So we've worked with them to ask them how they could scale cost effectively and how they could increase the funds that they are able to absorb and worked with them to get to a scale that's a lot larger than I think most charities working in global health and development um, as well as most of the grantees on our new intervention side. Additionally, we have a lot of trust in the implementers of our core interventions. Because we've been working with them for so long, we understand their track record and what they've historically done with funding, and so can have a lot of faith that, uh, we still check, but uh, we have more faith that they'll be able to use additional funding well. Additionally, we've worked with these models that underpin the recommendation for our core interventions for so long that we have a lot of confidence in th that the models are getting to the truth uh, as compared to some of our new interventions which have a little bit more of unknown unknowns because we've spent less time digging into the details and actually doing that modeling and had fewer feedback loops. 
The new interventions tend to be smaller because of these unknown and unknowns, as well as the fact that a lot of the lower hanging fruit in this uh, kind of evidence-based global health and development has already been picked by us. We've looked at a ton of interventions to find the core interventions that we uh, currently recommend for our top charities. And so when we're looking for things that could be as good or better than those funding opportunities, it might take a little bit more time or more effort to find, the, to find those giving opportunities. Additionally, because of GiveWell's current funding situation, our new interventions team is focused more on learning than it is on you know, making grants at a large scale. So uh, GiveWell currently believes that we have more high quality funding opportunities available than we expect to have funding available to allocate. This means that when the new interventions team is thinking about what their priorities should be, it's not so much about finding really big cost-effective opportunities now, it's more about trying to learn as much as we can so that we can set ourselves up for having great cost-effective opportunities at a bigger scale in the future, so focused on that learning. When GiveWell is making grants and comparing between our core interventions and our new interventions, we want to compare all of these grants to one another. We're using the same funding bar of 10 times as cost effective as unconditional cash transfers to underpin all of the grants that we make on any type of intervention. So we want to compare everything to these unconditional cash transfers. And the reason that we have the cost effectiveness bar that we do is because we want to be able to do the most good by funding the most cost effective things we see before we fund the least cost effective things. So when we think about a year's worth of funding, we try to model what funding we'll have available and what the funding opportunities we'll have available. And then choose a funding bar that allows us to make, the, make all the grants above the bar um, that year. That means that if we think that we'll end up, ha if we you know, make a shift and end up having more funding available, we'll lower the bar and fund things that were previously just under the bar. Whereas if we think that we'll have less funding available, we'll raise the bar and fund only the most cost effective things within, uh, within the things that we see. And so during this talk, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the different types of grants that we can make on the new intervention side of things and how we model those. And I just want to uh, underpin this whole conversation by uh, making sure to share that th these types of grants aren't the only grants that GiveWell is making and the only grants that GiveWell is excited about on the new intervention side of things. We're not very constrained in the types of things that we can support with our new interventions grant making. It could be really almost anything in global health and development that seems like it has a justifiable case for being more cost effective than our bar of 10x cash. So I'm gonna uh, kind of zoom into some of these uh, particular examples which I think will be interesting uh, and illustrative for the types of grant making that we can do as well as how we model it and make sure that the grants that we make and the decisions that we make on the new intervention side, uh, even though they're a little bit more speculative and have a little bit more risk than uh, the core interventions we've been working with for over half a decade, uh, we also want to make sure that we keep that same level of rigor and modeling and making sure that all of our assumptions are explicit. So we'll go into some types of new interventions grants, but it's certainly not all the uh, new interventions grant making that we do. So the categories I'll talk about, starting by gathering evidence for programs that don't have it yet. Um, we can also make grants to identify interventions that uh, don't have implementers yet and connect those to implementers, as well as modeling outcome metrics that we haven't yet modeled. So all of these things really allow us to try to go a little bit above the uh, core interventions and pick the uh, fruit that's hanging a little bit, a little bit higher. So starting by talking about gathering evidence for programs that don't have it yet. 
GiveWell's core interventions and all of the grants that we make are underpinned by high quality evidence, largely randomized control trials. And that means that we've spent a lot of time reviewing uh, definitely hundreds of randomized control trials uh, to, find, to find our recommendations and make our grants. Um, but that doesn't mean that we think that we've know everything. Uh, there's a lot that we don't know that we'd like to learn more about. And so part of what we can do is fund randomized control trials and fund the existence of the evidence that we'd like to see to make our decisions. So one example of a grant that we recently made here was to Bridges to Prosperity. Bridges to Prosperity is an organization that works to build trail bridges to connect isolated communities to schools, markets, and health clinics. Bridges to Prosperity, the, you know, Theory of change is that if it becomes easier to make it to the places that you need to go, um, you'll be able to kind of be more productive and, uh, for example, in the markets, sell your wares at, uh, more easily and uh, reduce some of those frictions there. When GiveWell first was learning about and working with Bridges to Prosperity, we found out that they were working on a randomized control trial. So we actually decided to uh, pause our investigation and wait to see what the results of their kind of follow-up randomized control trial would be. Um, however, because of COVID, some of the funding for the, that RCT fell through, and Bridges to Prosperity was forced to cut the size of the study um, about in half. GiveWell was excited about getting that research, uh, so we were actually able to step in and fill in some of that funding gap to double the size of the randomized control trial so that we could learn more and make a better decision later about Bridges to Prosperity. Some of the things that we were most interested in, were and are most interested in getting information about from Bridges to Prosperity and from this RCT include what the impact of bridges on household income is, uh, how long those benefits will last, how many households are impacted by a bridge, and what the generalizability of you know, this randomized control trial in Rwanda might be to Bridges to Prosperity's work in other locations. Another grant that we uh, decided to make uh, in generating evidence was to the One Acre Fund Seedlings Program. This program works to offer seedlings, young trees, and uh, training on how to grow these trees to farmers in nine African countries. The idea is that if once they get these trees, they're able to plant them and grow them, and then use the branches as the tree is growing to uh, sell them and get money as well as to, once the tree is big, have uh, multiple long-term assets that they could cut down and sell for wood at any other time. Our model of this program is that it meets our cost-effectiveness bar in a few countries, but not in all of the countries that they work in. So we wanted to gather additional information on this program to see if, to see if, it, if that's the correct uh, model of the world. Whenever we make a grant to support a randomized control trial or evidence collection, there's two types of benefits that we want to consider. The first one is the direct benefit of the program. How much are the farmers that are being helped by these seedlings being helped? And the second one is the value of information. How much is the RCT and the results of the RCT going to change GiveWell's uh, decision making and future, future grants? And so the way that we do this is through a value of information cost effectiveness analysis. I'm gonna walk you through the cost effectiveness analysis, but a very uh, simplified version. And if anybody's interested in learning more, we can uh, definitely talk more in the Q&A or office hours. But the first step of trying to understand the value of information we would get from this RCT is by estimating GiveWell's future cost effectiveness bar and funding timeline. So let's assume that our cost effectiveness bar stays the same at 10x and that we would end up funding this program for 10 years or that's how long the evidence would be valuable. The next step is to model the different states of the world. 
So GiveWell is obsessed with the counterfactual. So the first thing we need to think about is what would the world look like if we didn't fund this randomized control trial? And what that would, be, would mean here is that we wouldn't get any new information. So we'd continue to think that Bridges to Prosperity is 10x cash in a few countries, and we'd fund them at about $5 million a year. So now in the world where we do fund the cost effect or fund the randomized control trial, um, we can go through what the expected value of that would be. Um, so let's say the three options are negative update, positive update, or no large update on the impact of seedlings on, uh, on, the, on incomes. Uh, let's say there's about a third chance of each of those happening um, because we have you know, some evidence that underpins our current, our current model, but we think that there's a solid chance that it could update in either direction. In the world of the negative update, let's say that we now think uh, this seedlings program is 8x cash. That means that it would be below our bar, so we would not allocate any funding to it. And the outcome would be that we would give $5 million that we would otherwise have given to seedlings to a different opportunity at 10x cash. So the value of that outcome is $5 million annually at 2x cash. The 2x is from the 10x compared to the previous uh, option of 8x. In the world of the positive update, there's also a third chance that we think that uh, this program becomes more cost effective. So let's say the new model cost effectiveness is 11x cash, and that means we would fund this program in more countries. So we'd actually allocate $10 million a year to the seedlings program. So the outcome there is $5 million at 11x instead of a different opportunity right at our bar at 10x cash. So the value of that outcome is $5 million annually at 1x cash. And then there's also a world where we don't think anything different because of the RCT and that it validates what we currently believe. That um, would mean that we wouldn't change what we would be doing. We'd give them, 10, we'd give them uh, $5 million at 10x cash, just like we would in the world of no RCT. And the value of that outcome is uh, zero in terms of value of information. The next step is to compile that all together to see what the uh, expected value of that would be. So we would take the present value of the expected value of each of these options of streams of benefits over 10 years and then compare that to the cost of the study, which is $1.3 million. And so what that would look like kind of in the weeds would be you take $5 million at 2x, a third chance of that, plus $5 million at 1x, a third chance of that, plus a third chance of no benefit. That means that the value of the benefits each year is around $5 million. Then we take the net present value of uh, that benefit strain over 10 years with a 5% discount rate. Now we just do this in Excel, so we're not gonna talk through the math of it, but um, that's around $35 million in overall benefit from the information we could get from this study. Then, because we're GiveWell, we want to make reductions for other uh, reasons and other adjustments. So in this case, we add a 25% downward adjustment for A, the likelihood that this study would have been funded without GiveWell support anyway, fungibility, and B, for the likelihood that this study updates us, but there's something wrong with the study, either in terms of statistical noise or an implementation issue that causes us to update in a way that is not correct. So that reduces the benefit stream by about 25%. Uh, so $26 million of benefits uh, divided by the cost of the study at $1.3 million brings the value of information for the study to be around 20x cash, which is well above our bar. And so again, this is a really simplified model. I'm happy to dig into it more later. And even with the not simplified model, uh, we don't take these estimates literally. It's kind of directional and helps us compare things to one another, but it's not uh, something that we take literally. But that said, um, the fact that this 
the value of information from this RCT seems to be about double our bar, means that we have some wiggle room. We can feel pretty, we can feel pretty confident that it's likely to be above 10x cash. And we might spend more time on the cost-effectiveness analysis if, for example, this penciled out to 11x cash. We might go back and make sure that we feel more confident about every parameter there. Um, so yeah, the next type of uh, new intervention grant that I'm going to talk about here is about identifying interventions that don't have implementers yet. When GiveWell is looking to make a grant, we start by looking at the program level or looking at interventions and things that have evidence behind them so that we can uh, you know, review that evidence, create a cost-effectiveness analysis. And then once something seems promising, we'll start looking for a charity working on it or an implementer that we can support. Sometimes, however, we find a program that seems great and seems cost-effective, but we can't find any shovel-ready giving opportunities that we could support. In you know, the old days of GiveWell, a decade ago, that would have meant that we were done with that investigation because we were really looking for shovel-ready opportunities at that time. But now that GiveWell has a broader scale and more researchers on board, we are really excited to be able to um, have the ability to find these interventions that don't have implementers and work to connect the intervention to the implementer. We've done this in a few different ways, through requests for proposals and working on kind of coalition building and networking. But uh, the way that I want to uh, you know, dig in here is through a program that, or a grant that we made to create an accelerator within the Clinton Health Access Initiative, or CHI, to scope and scale interventions that we think could be great, but don't currently have an obvious implementer. So um, this grant was, uh, we, we made this grant to do this uh, cost-effectiveness analysis, piloting, and testing. And we think that CHI could be a good implementing partner for uh, a few different interventions that we think we'd love to see being, being built, um, including oral rehydration solution to treat malnutrition and breastfeeding promotion programs. Right now, the CHI team is working on some of these uh, cost-effectiveness analyses, as well as talking to their country teams to get a little bit more concrete knowledge of what this pro these programs could look like in action. And we're really excited to, be, uh, to potentially be able to work with CHI to increase the size of these, of these programs that, don't, that aren't being implemented right now and uh, eventually be funding that as a, as a priority of the GiveWells. When we think about how to model the cost effectiveness of a grant like this that's kind of meta in that this grant's purpose is to give us more room for more funding in the future. And we don't know where exactly that room for more funding would come from. We have a long list of things that we'd like to explore with Chai, but we don't know which ones of them might end up being grantees in the future. So we want to have a kind of general cost effectiveness analysis. And one way that we do this is through our threshold evaluation. So basically seeing um, in order for this grant to be 10x cash, what room for more funding would it have to open up? So the first step here is to estimate GiveWell's future cost effectiveness bar, which we'll assume stays at 10x cash. And then to consider how much room for more funding at what cost effectiveness would be necessary for the CHI grant to meet this threshold of cost effectiveness. So if you kind of uh, do the math, you can see that in order for this grant to be 10x cash, it would need to unlock $15 million in highly cost-effective room for more funding at 12x cash. Around 75% of that would have to be counterfactual, meaning we wouldn't otherwise be funding uh, that program without Chai's help. And our counterfactual use of funds would have to be at our bar of 10x. So the, the, uh, chai, the chai opportunities are about 2x greater than what we would otherwise have funded. So once we know what the threshold would be, we have to consider whether that seems plausible, whether that seems like that's something that this grant will actually be able to create for us. And the way that we do that is by comparing it to our best guess model. 
Our best guess is that um, this CHI grant will actually unlock $30 million in room for more funding um, that has the same proportion of counterfactual and compare it and cost effectiveness as our uh, threshold analysis suggests. So that means that you know, our model of this grant is that it might be around 20x cash, but we also uh, are just able to look at the threshold analysis and see that it's likely to pass our bar and uh, be excited to make that grant. So we're really happy to be able to turn this question that used to be a really hard one for GiveWell for how do we, how do we find and fund opportunities that aren't easy to fund and turn that into a research question that we can then model and uh, evaluate. And so the next portion I want to talk about is about modeling outcome metrics that uh, GiveWell hasn't modeled yet. A lot of people think about GiveWell as focusing on saving lives and increasing incomes. And that's a big part of what our grant making focuses on. But we're also interested in improving lives in other ways, like by averting disability. And one grant that we recently decided to make in this area was to Miracle Feet. Miracle Feet is an organization that works on treating children for clubfoot. Um, clubfoot is a congenital disability that uh, causes pain, uh, challenges in movement, uh, social stigma, and we think a reduction in, in income uh, later in life. And Miracle Feet uh, uses the Pinsetti method to treat clubfoot, which uh, is a combination of stretching, casts, braces, and surgery, but a much less invasive surgery than most of the um, most of the other treatments for clubfoot. We funded Miracle Feet to increase the size and scale of their work in the Philippines and to launch programs in Chad and Cote d'Ivoire. There's a few ways that this Miracle Feet grant is a little bit different than most of GiveWell's grant making. The first is that it's focused on treatment. So all of GiveWell's core interventions and um, most of the grants that we've made are focused on prevention because we found that that's a, very, that's a much cheaper and uh, often more cost-effective way to address things than uh, than treatment can be. But uh, Miracle Feet looks good even though it's a little bit more expensive than the rest of our, um, than the rest of our interventions that we support. Um, but as an example, it costs over $500 to uh, cure a child of clubfoot with Miracle Feet uh, compared to around $5 to distribute a, uh, to distribute a malaria net. Um, but this is kind of made a little bit easier by the fact that Miracle Feet and most treatment interventions are able to focus on uh, treating people who it's clear that already have a club foot. So we're able to do a more expensive uh, procedure on a narrow group of people as compared to many of GiveWell's interventions, which focus on a wide prevention for, uh, at, and looking for benefits at a population level. Another way in which this is different is that it's focused on averting disability as opposed to uh, increasing incomes or saving lives. Um, not having clubfoot, uh, we think, means that these children and later adults are going to be able to wear shoes, walk, and move more easily than they otherwise would have, and that they're likely to be able to avoid some uh, stigma and uh, exclusion from social, educational, and income-generating activities in the future. And so when we want to think about how to compare something like Miracle Feet to, something, to other interventions that are saving lives or increasing incomes, we use GiveWell's moral weights, which are basically a way that we use to compare between different types of interventions so that we can come up with one prioritized list regardless of outcome metric. And in GiveWell's moral weights, we have a moral weight for uh, the value we think of averting a year lived with disease. Um, a year lived with disease, or a YLD, is a pretty common metric in global health and development. Um, the global burden of disease uh, does a, uh, not quite annual, but uh, 
annual-ish uh, survey of people asking how bad they think particular disabilities might be and comes up with a large uh, resource, a compendium of the relative value and the relative disutility of particular, uh, particular disabilities. So we're able to use that information to try and understand how, how bad particular uh, disabilities might be in comparison to one another. So when we try to make our moral weight for clubfoot, which we have to generate because we don't, by default, have a moral weight for clubfoot, we have to search the Global Burden of Disease uh, database to see if we can get the um, disability weight for clubfoot. There is no disability weight for clubfoot that we could see, but we found something uh, similar, which was disfigurement level two with pain and moderate motor impairment due to congenital limb deficiency, um, which is uh, definitely a mouthful. Um, and so we get the moral weight for, or the disability weight for that. And then we want to adjust for unilateral versus bilateral clubfoot. Unilateral clubfoot is clubfoot in one foot, bilateral is clubfoot in both feet. We end up um, making an adjustment saying that unilateral clubfoot is about 75% as bad as bilateral clubfoot, which we chose because it's um, certainly with having uh, only one clubfoot will make it easier to do a lot of the things that uh, people would likely like to do, but they're still facing, um, unfortunately, a strong amount of social stigma and uh, exclusion for this, uh, for this disability. Once we make that adjustment, we want to kind of sense check that against other disability weights that we can see. So one disability weight that we saw, thought would be comparable is for severe osteoarthritis of the hip. We modeled that, so the global burden of disease disability weight for that is, uh, is a little less bad than um, our disability weight that we uh, came up with for unilateral clubfoot which makes sense to us because both osteoarthritis and unilateral clubfoot would hamper someone's ability to move in the ways that they'd like to, but uh, unilateral clubfoot is likely to be a more, a more visible disability and something that, um, people might, uh, that might cause people to have more uh, stigma against them. So that passes the uh, intuition check. We also think that uh, Miracle Feet's program is increasing people's uh, income later in life because they are not facing the uh, exclusion that, uh, I've, that we've been talking about. We, at this point, we take a lot of the global burden of disease disability weights uh, at face value, and we're really looking for additional capacity and excited to grow our research team so that we can interrogate things like this a little bit more deeply. And so um, if anyone's interested in learning more about uh, working at GiveWell, this is the these questions and the types of questions we've been talking about during this whole talk are the types of things that GiveWell's new intervention team really focuses on. So I hope this is helpful to talk a little bit about some of the ways that we uh, go up and try to climb and find the higher hanging fruit of uh, some of the new interventions that we're excited to fund in terms of gathering evidence for programs don't that don't have it yet and modeling the value of information there, as well as modeling threshold analyses for things that um, we'd like to connect implementers to interventions and um, modeling outcome metrics that we haven't yet modeled and kind of adapting uh, disability weights. These three types of grants and types of um, ways that we build our pipeline of top charities are, they don't work separately from one another. Um, they often work, work together. So Miracle Feet is a great example of multiple of these. So we just talked about how it's a kind of novel outcome metric, but we're also likely to fund an evaluation of Miracle, Fate, Miracle Feet in the near future, so gathering some evidence there. And we also were able to pilot and, and fund a miracle feat to expand into, um, 
into new countries, Chad and Cote d'Ivoire, so that we can uh, see whether they would be a good implementer of programs there. So kind of piloting the implementation, uh, piloting the implementation there. Um, again, yeah, these aren't all the types of grants and definitely not all the types of modeling that, uh, that GiveWell does, but I hope it's a helpful taste into some of the, some of the work that we, that we do. Um, and we're hiring, so uh, we're hiring for a lot of roles at varying levels of seniority. So if any of this modeling or any of these questions seemed interesting or like something you'd like to dig into, um, we welcome your application, and I'd love to chat at uh, office hours, and we have other, uh, other people at GiveWell at the conference as well to uh, chat about that. Um, so yeah, that was really what I wanted to share with you all. I think that we now have some time for question and answer, and then we're going to have some office hours after that. Thanks so much, Olivia. That was really informative, um, and um, I'm to take it as well. So, <laughs> thanks so much. Um, just a reminder to everybody uh, that you can submit questions through the app, um, and you can also vote for questions. We've got a couple there, but um, I'm sure there, there might be some more questions out there, so please don't be shy, and uh, uh, please ask away. Um, so I'll start with one that we've got here. So one outcome metric that's been coming up lately in EA spaces is uh, subjective well-being. Mm. Um, is this something that um, GiveWell has looked into or is considered modeling? Yeah, it's something that we're currently actively looking into and trying to uh, come to a conclusion about. So unfortunately, we're not yet at the point where I can share anything uh, super concrete about what our thoughts or conclusions might be. But um, it's been a really complicated and interesting topic for us to dig into. And we're excited to uh, share something in the, in the, in the sh near to medium term uh, with, the, uh, with, the, with the community on what, uh, what our opinions are on that or what our initial read is. Yeah, OK, great. Um, and I guess a somewhat similar question is, uh, so rather than using the GiveWell staff moral weights and like the global burden of disease disability weights, um, would GiveWell consider funding a study to evaluate preferences of people in specific recipient communities of um, the interventions that you're funding? We definitely would, and we actually have. In 2019, we funded ID Insight to run a survey of people, of very poor people living in Kenya and Ghana to ask them how they might make the same types of trade-offs that we have to make when we're making these, uh, when we're choosing how to prioritize funding. This study both you know, asked people individually about what their preferences would be and asked some people to uh, take the role of a potential funder and uh, choose between different sets of outcomes and sets of uh, interventions to use in their communities. And we found this to be a really useful tool in setting our moral weights. So our current moral weights you know, include a proxy for um, include a proxy for the results of the study in them. And overall, that, uh, the information from that study qualitatively, or qualitatively and quantitatively, <laughs> um, caused us to uh, shift our moral weights much more toward uh, prioritizing saving lives over kind of increasing incomes. Yeah, okay, cool, very cool. Okay, we've got a, a few more questions coming in. Um, so what are some other new intervention uh, organizations that you're excited about? Is there any specific interventions or organizations? Definitely. So um, one additional one that uh, I'm pretty excited about is uh, Kangaroo Mother Care. So this is a program that you know encourages exclusive breastfeeding and also uh, encourages parents of uh, preterm babies to uh, keep their babies here and kind of wrap them up and do a lot of skin-to-skin -skin contact. Contact. This is something that's actually really 
really cost-effective, but also just really effective full stop, there's uh, pretty strong evidence suggesting that this kangaroo mother care is, for preterm infants, is a better way of, uh, you know, improving outcomes and um, averting the deaths of these, of these infants than even what we have in rich countries like the... Uh, is it an incubator you put a baby in when it uh, when it is really little? Um, actually, being being in your mother's uh, chest might might be it seems like could be even better than that. So it's an intervention that seems really great. Um, and Givel was having a little bit of trouble finding, seeing whether technical assistance and working with governments to implement that was the right way to do it. And so we actually recently made a grant to Rice. I don't know what it stands for, Institute for Compassionate Economics, but I don't know what the R is, um, to actually hire nurses to go into a hospital in India and encourage this uh, exclusive breastfeeding and uh, close chest holding that is uh, associated with kangaroo mother care. Another program that I'm pretty excited about within technical assistance that's about technical assistance uh, being a great fit for something is... um, we're about to publish on Monday, so uh, a little bit of a spoiler alert here, um, a program on an extension grant that we, or a grant that we just made to extend a program that's working on, conge- on averting congenital syphilis uh, into two new countries. I believe it's uh, Zambia and Cameroon. Um, to to uh, allow them to change their uh, prenatal testing system from HIV-only prenatal tests to testing for both HIV and syphilis. And this is something that could be really great because um, having syphilis in pregnancy is associated with um, all sorts of bad outcomes for the baby, but syphilis can be treated really uh, really easily with one uh, shot of penicillin that costs less than 50 cents. So the idea is... um, these people are already going in for HIV testing uh, when they're pregnant. And if you can swap out the HIV-only tests for dual HIV syphilis tests, you can get the results from that back in about 20 minutes and treat people in the same visit, making it much less likely that they pass syphilis onto their, um, onto their babies. So we funded Evidence Action to work, to work on this project of providing technical assistance to the governments to kind of switch out these tests, which cost almost the same amount. And Evidence Action is optimistic that this program will be able to, that they'll be able to kind of work with the government to cause this uh, switch to happen, and they'll be able to exit within about five or six years and have the uh, dual test continue to be the standard of care there. Okay, very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so it seems like there's a lot of, you know, very exciting and cost-effective charities. Um, we've got a question here about how GiveWell prioritizes. So um, probably it's just a small subset of all those Charities are potentially very good that make it onto the list of top charities. Um, is it just cost effectiveness that is, uh, I guess, the determination of that list, or are there other factors that come into it? Cost effectiveness is the biggest factor that causes us to support or not support uh, an organization. There are some things that go into that, though. Um, so the first one is transparency. It's really hard for us to you know, be able to work with and model and uh, figure out whether an intervention or a charity is cost effective if we're not able to be communicating with that charity in an effective way, if we're not feeling like they're giving us the uh, information that we need to make that. So kind of, I would say a baseline is transparency and being able to share a lot of information with us. And from there, um, we do a lot of work on cost effectiveness. The cost effectiveness, our cost effectiveness models are the biggest input into our funding decisions. But we don't take our cost effectiveness models literally. So we want to use our cost effectiveness models as a way of comparing organizations and charities and interventions to one another. But we also want to take into account the other types of things that um, that we see. For example, you know uh, how we see 
how we see the organization fitting into the ecosystem. Um, we do a lot, when we're making grants, we do a lot of you know, talking to partners and talking to experts about you know, what's it like to work with this organization and um, trying to try and understand what their, like, whether their theory of change seems feasible. A lot of that feeds into our cost effectiveness analysis because we're very interested in taking the, uh, uh, taking the assumptions and the things that we're learning and quantifying those and putting them into our cost effectiveness analysis. So a lot of factors go into our cost effectiveness analysis, um, but we also, make, uh, we also include other factors in our decision making. Yeah. Another, sorry, another big one that we, that we think about is being a responsible funder. So GiveWell doesn't want to be in a situation where, you know, there's a year where we feel like we have a lot of funding and we talk to an organization and we say, go start this new program. And we give them a year of funding and then the next year we feel like we don't have as much money or they're not looking as cost effective. And then we've kind of pulled the funding rug under their, under their feet. So we think a lot about giving grants that are for multiple years so that we can uh, make sure that an organization doesn't uh, isn't isn't going to expect us to uh, fund them again if, uh, if if we don't think that they continue to be cost effective. Um, but we also consider the responsibility of, of uh, as our responsibility as a funder and the ways in which and the ways in which if we kind of create a program, we want to be sure that it's able to wind down uh, effectively and responsibly if we decide to stop supporting it, or ideally uh, instead of winding down, find other funders. That, that makes sense. Um, there's a couple of questions here which I think are kind of related, so um, I'll kind of try to bring them in together. Um, so there's been some criticisms of GiveWell that go something along the lines of um, there are some interventions which you need to reach a certain threshold of funding to, for them to be able to have any impact. So for example, I don't know, something that's aiming to get a policy change. Yeah. Um, and, so, and that's, I guess, uh, in opposition or in comparison to a lot of GiveWell's top recommended charities where the kind of um, benefit is almost linear to the amount of funding, um, although probably not perfectly, but more <laughs> yeah. along those lines. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on that uh, criticism? And I guess, you know, related to that, um, what are your thoughts on, um, I guess, give, or what, what does GiveWell think about funding uh, policy-related charities? Definitely. Yeah, I think that um, for GiveWell's core interventions, it's definitely true that they're, you know, almost linear and that a dollar or, you know, a dollar, five dollars donated kind of has this linear impact. Um, but for some of the other things we've been talking about, um, particularly kind of the congenital syphilis program um, and other technical assistance programs that GiveWell has funded, those have a little bit more of that uh, thresholdy or kind of staircase, uh, staircase style, of, style of impact. So we're certainly open to that and able to model that. Um, GiveWell's made uh, you know, our fair share of grants in policy advocacy. So we've made grants to the Center for Pesticide Suicide Prevention, um, which works on policy, changing, policy change in banning some of the most lethal pesticides used in suicides. We've also made grants in uh, tobacco, or in alcohol control, uh, which is also focused on policy change, and um, in lead elimination and lead, lead exposure reduction. Um, those were, so kind of our main researcher for those, uh, James Snowden, recently kind of switched to open philanthropy. So I think that he's uh, taking some of, those, uh, some of those grants with him and that open philanthropy is likely gonna be the funder of things like that, things like that going forward. But um, we were certainly an early, an early grantee or an early grantor of uh, funds in the policy advocacy space, including, including lead. 
Um, we've got a couple of questions here about the trade-offs, and I think they're related to Gibwell's moral weights as mm -hmm. well. Um, so I'll start with one that's just, um, so how do you evaluate the trade-off between, for example, one $500 club foot treatment and $105 malaria pills? Um, are these all compared using um, estimated disability adjusted life years? Yeah, so we compare those things to one another using cost effectiveness. So when we have one program that saves lives and one program that averts disability, what we want to do to compare those is bring those all into the same unit. And the same unit that we use is how many times more cost effective than cash transfers is it. So when we, I'm trying to figure out how, how in the weeds to, to, to get here, but when we um, make a grant to you know address Clubfoot, we're using our moral weights to basically get to a kind of an arbitrary, the moral weights allow us to change something like a, a life saved into a very arbitrary uh, unit that we call units of value. And so then when we think about comparing things to cash transfers, it's really kind of through these arbitrary units of value. So the moral weights allow us to kind of get, we get disability, we get disability averted and turn that into units of value. We get lives saved and turn that into units of value. We get income doubled and turn that into units of value. And the moral weights are what we use to turn all of those different outcome metrics into units of value. And then the units of value are comparable to one another. Mm, thank you. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Good. It's, it's, <laughs> well, it does to me at least. But. It would be, it would be, yeah. Our cost effectiveness analysis is would not be good to bring up, but uh, is where yeah. we where we do it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's the Gibwell moral weights which take the different like year lived with disability into this unit of value, and you know uh, year of extra life into the unit of value. Is exactly. So the key the key kind of parameter parameter there is that we currently do have a Givewell moral weight for averting a year lived with disability. Mm -hmm. If we didn't have kind of a not pre-made because we made it, but if we hadn't made for ourselves uh, a kind of conversion between a disability weight into a unit of value through our moral weights, we wouldn't be able to compare, for example, uh, a, a disability adjusted life year to a give well unit of value. We need to have something to compare those all to one another. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So I guess in this case, for this example, um, uh, part of the question is, um, I guess the common unit for malaria and clubfoot is a year lived in disability or disability adjusted life year actually? So uh, not exactly because the we have kind of just a straight up moral value or a, a moral weight for the conversion of averting the life of somebody at a particular age mm -hmm. into units of value. So uh, okay. it's not like we go, um, you know, averting a life to disability life to disability life year to moral weight, yeah. we go uh, from death averted to units of value through moral weights for uh, you know saving a life, and then we do that uh, we do that same thing for the disability adjusted life year. Yeah. Um, but many of our uh, charities that work on uh, saving lives also reduce morbidity and reduce uh, disability. So uh, example is malaria malaria control and prevention. Um, the main outcome that we that we look for there is saving lives but it's also good to have fewer people sick with malaria. And so in that case, we actually use a um, kind of subjective adjustment and increase the cost effectiveness of our, of our malaria charities by, uh, I think it's 9% mm -hmm. to uh, account for the fact that we think about that amount of the value comes from averting the morbidity of malaria cases. 
Okay, so you don't change it into disability adjusted life year. You keep it in um, you know, years, uh, years of life lost uh, prevented, but then add a, add a little bonus. Exactly. Okay. Um, that's exactly it. So we have in, in our cost effectiveness analysis, we have things that we are that we model, and then things that we don't model. And um, the things that we don't model, we add uh, we add kind of subjective uh, shifts to the cost effectiveness analysis. But those subjective shifts are also uh, based on uh, evidence in our review of uh, what we believe to be true. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Um, so another similar question, which is like, I guess, um, yeah, related, and I'll just read it out. So is there any alternative to the data you use to generate the moral weights? Um, it seems like you would get very different responses if you ask people who had a, the disability how bad it was, instead of asking people to imagine how bad the disability is. That is definitely true. Um, and it's one of the big challenges of trying to do this big interpersonal comparison because, you know, Ideally, we'd be able to, you know, have one person experience everything bad and then rank them. But it would be really bad to be that person. <laughs> um, and also, that's just that's just not um, what we have access to. So um, the global burden of disease uh, study is trying to is trying to approximate that, and um, it's just one of those things where it's very, it's very hard to know the truth. And so GiveWell and you know, a lot of other people in this room and in the global development community and in effective altruism are trying to figure out directionally what, uh, what we believe to be true, but there's definitely not going to be a like single correct, or there probably is a correct answer, but we're definitely never gonna know it. Um, and so we just have to kind of do our best. And that's a big part, I think, of why GiveWell really likes to quantify all of the kind of assumptions and every step of our decision-making process so that people can go into our cost-effectiveness analyses if they'd like to and kind of vet what we vet what we're what we're doing we're not able to say that we're definitely getting the right answer on everything but we can commit to being as clear as possible about why we're making the choices and why we're making the assumptions that we're making such that anyone who wants to check on it or see if they agree, has the ability to see where they might agree or disagree with both the kind of, uh, with, all the, with, with, with all the decisions that we're making, which have varying levels of kind of the necessity to speculate or guess or kind of try to get to the truth in uh, ways that are impossible. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, it's been a while since I've done it, but I think you know, at least a couple of years ago, you could actually go in and um, there's spreadsheets there and you can look at all the GiveWell staff's kind of assessments of different um, parameters and put your own values in. Does that still exist on the website? It does still exist. In our cost effectiveness analysis, you can kind of make a copy and then see what GiveWell's moral weights are and see where, and kind of make a copy and put your own moral weights and see where things might come out based on your moral weights. But um, not but, and that's great. And also it's really hard to come up with moral weights. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we don't expect really very many people to be coming in with, ah, GiveWell thinks it's 125 times better to save the life of a child than it is to double someone's income, but I think it's 130 times better. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I think there'd be some people in the effective altruism community who might be um, up for making those sorts of <laughs> definitely. <laughs> um, okay, cool. A couple more questions. Um, so, how did GiveWell end up with the seventy-seven percent, twenty-three percent split for um, core interventions versus new interventions? Yeah, that's certainly not uh, any sort of budget or kind of quota. 
Um, we, may, we compare all of our grants to the same cost effectiveness bar. So it's really what, whatever grants clear the 10x bar um, that are investigated in each of those, in each of those areas. Um, but, of course, the core interventions team is doing shallower intervention, uh, investigations of many more interventions. So they make more grants and smaller grants and make up a smaller proportion of our, of our grant making. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Um, another question is, how does GiveWell choose when to do research in-house versus taking the funded organization's research on base? Um, so funded organizations have a lot of expertise, but also an incentive to emphasize the problems in their area. Yeah. We, very carefully, <laughs> um, no, we, so GiveWell doesn't do a lot of kind of our, a lot of on the ground research or research that's, you know, running randomized control trials or anything like that in-house. Our research team is pretty focused on synthesis and then also when we want to gather information or, you know, do a randomized control trial, we're able to do that by working with our partners and uh, funding them to collect, to collect data. So. We have definitely uh, trusted partners that we uh, have worked with in the past to help us collect data from, from the real world that then the GiveWell researchers can work on synthesizing. One thing that's really helpful about GiveWell or one thing that's convenient is that we're often the consumers of the research that we're uh, commissioning or making grants to support. So we're able to really understand what we would like to see that will help us uh, help us make our decisions but kind of in general we aren't doing we aren't conducting a lot of the on the ground research we're more in a position where we'd like to fund fund other organizations that we trust and vet them to uh, create the research that we'd like to see to make our decisions yeah okay and a somewhat related question um how do you gather information on fungibility so whether studies or interventions would be funded without GiveWell? that seems tricky to quantify it's definitely tricky to quantify. Uh, we spend a lot of time on it, um, and a lot of it comes from having the networks and being able to talk to people in different areas. So if we are, you know, so and it, the Seedlings Grant is a great example. We think there's a relatively low risk of fungibility because the One Acre Fund is currently kind of happy with the amount of research that they have on their Seedlings program. They're excited to invest in it um, based on the research that already exists. And we appreciate that research and think that it's valuable as well, but we're interested in getting more. So because we are the main consumer of that research, um, we, and, and the, the fact that the One Acre Fund isn't particularly motivated to you know, fundraise for it separately, we have a relatively smaller um, fungibility adjustment for that than if it was there was you know, an organization that was coming to us and saying, we want to create this evaluation, can you fund it? That still might be something that we'd like to fund and would be excited to fund, but then we'd want to think more about, you know, what's your fundraising strategy for if we say no? And kind of in the world of core interventions, we're thinking a lot about, you know, we'd like to distribute uh, malaria nets in this particular area with the Against Malaria Foundation, but is the President's Malaria Initiative going to do that instead? And so we spend a lot of time talking to, you know, the uh, national malaria control programs of different countries and talking to other funders or co-funders to see what their priorities are. And it's um, definitely, it's definitely tricky. We, uh, it's one of the things that I think keeps our researchers up at night, uh, hopefully not too late, but <laughs> um, that is a really challenging question. Yeah. Um, well, that unfortunately is all the time that we've got in this session, but um, I understand you'll be in office hours just next door 
for the next hour, is that correct? That's correct. Yep. I don't okay. know where it is, but I know that it's now. Okay, <laughs> I, I'm, I think it's next door, but maybe um, just check the program. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, yeah, this has been absolutely fantastic. Um, and also thank you everyone for your questions. They've also been absolutely fantastic. Um, but yeah, please join me in um, saying thank you and giving a round of applause to Olivia Lachlan.